Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. Join us today as we learn from God's word in Habakkuk. We pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, we are in the book of Habakkuk. You can turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. Verses 5 through 20 is where we are going to be today. Uh, we've been kind of saying on repeat through this section over and over and over again, kind of reminding the, the church through the scriptures here that there is a problem in our world, that this world is, is broken and that there is sadness. And we've, we've continued to try and remind everyone and focus in on the fact that we, we know what's wrong with the world. We see it every day. We see it in justice. We see it in racism. We see it in death. We see it in, in hardship. We see it in viruses. All of the hardships that continue to come our way, we see them over and over and over again. And we know that the root cause, the underdrive, kind of the thing that the current that's, that's, that's pushing on it, that's, that's forcing it to go the way it is, is sin. The issue is always and has always been sin since the garden. It's not changed, it's not, it's not different, it's not worked itself differently, it's just continued to show itself differently from culture to culture to culture to culture. And I don't say that the problem is sin to be evasive, to ignore the, the issues or the struggles that are going on in this world. Instead, I say that we should recognize that it's sin because it helps us understand how to, how to defeat sin. The only one that has ever been victorious and beaten sin is Jesus Christ. The only thing that will ever take us through sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ and coming out the other side whole. We have to see it that way. And so when we see sin happen, no matter what it is, no matter whether it's death or injustice or the virus or, or anything, when we see the brokenness come to light, as followers of Jesus, our posture is not to stand back and go, oh no, it's sin, it's dangerous, it's dead. No, our posture is to grieve the depravity that it is, it's sin. And the, the, the full commission, or the full working out of that sin is death. And death is the enemy. Jesus Christ went to the tomb and resurrected to, come, to defeat that enemy. So the problem has always been in this world. Rebellion to God, playing itself out in a number of horrific ways. From, from, from sex trafficking to drugs to alcohol to death to violence to divisiveness to slander to malice we see it all over in scriptures it's ugly it's grievous we should not be hardened to it when we see sin we shouldn't use sin as some opportunity to, to stand up and, and create a podium for some kind of agenda instead we should grieve sin and then search the scriptures and ask the holy spirit to ask us how do we as his children in this broken world that's riddled with sin walk and help fight and bring light to this broken world that's been the problem all along we tend to get focused on the outworking of that problem in other ways. And it's not wrong, again, for us to search the scriptures and to see what the Spirit of God wants us to do to live accordingly to the kingdom that is in heaven, that we are pleading with Jesus to make it here on earth as it is in heaven. It's okay for us as children that are part of that kingdom to try and break the light into the darkness in those ways. And if that's doing it with injustice or doing it with death or doing it with pain or any other way, it's okay. Or, or, or slavery or impoverishment, like whatever we see... We need to engage in it as believers in a way that is true to Scripture and that is submitted to the Holy Spirit. But we also have to keep our minds reminded of one other really 
big and important fact that if the enemy is sin and Jesus is the only way to get out of and through sin, then our primary focus, our primary purpose is to compel, to speak, to show, and to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing that can defeat sin and has defeated sin. But we also have to remember that God has a plan and he's at work. See, we see over and over and over in Scripture, specifically in Habakkuk today. I was going to say that this is a tough or a difficult text, but let's just be honest. All of Habakkuk has been difficult, so let's just settle in for that. But over the next two two weeks, we're going to try and navigate a truth that I think speaks life and and truth into the idea that sin is the enemy and that, that there is just grievous things going on and that we should be weeping for the brokenness that continues to come forward in our life. We should be pleading for Jesus to come back and make all things new like he has promised to do. We should hope and long for that day. We should groan for that day like creation groans for the resurrection of Christ. But in this text, we see that God has an answer for this. He has an answer, and it's not, it may seem like it's taking a long time, but God is patient, and he's long-suffering. But he has an answer. God has an answer for all of the problems in this world, which the root problem is sin. He has an answer for that. See, people of faith in God are either going to be living by faith or we're going to be proud people of faith in anything else but God. And that's what we talked about last week. We said that there are these two people. There's the people that live by faith and the proud people that, that put their faith in other things and other things that can't sustain it. And the people that live by faith, God calls them justified or righteous. And the people that, that aren't living by faith in God, they are not upright. They are not righteous. They are do something. And we see this kind of come into full fruition this week. A pastor, I heard a pastor preach this text, and he kind of called this text kind of the wrath or discipline idea, and I just love that idea, and so I thought I would just run with it. See, in light of everything that is going on in life right now, it's really a continuation of these two groups that Habakkuk has already given us in the text. There's the righteous and the not righteous. This leaves us with this really big question. We asked this question last week, is, is who are we? Are we, the, are we the righteous or are we the unrighteous? Are we, the, are we the, those that are submitted to God in humility or are we the proud? Are we the not upright or are we the, are we the right? And that, that's this heart question that every single one of us feels. Well, in this text, we see that question get a little bit further because if you take these two groups of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, that, that Habakkuk, that God gave us in the first part of chapter two last week, and you take those two groups of people, we now see that we have an outpouring, an outworking of what God's plan is for sinfulness. And I think we, we tend to forget this sometimes. It's that we are either going to be under God's wrath or under God's discipline. Like, great, we're going we're gonna to talk about wrath today. Yes, that's what the text talks about. Like I said, it's a hard, hard text. While on earth, here's the thing about being under God's wrath or being in under discipline. They're going to look very similar. It's going to be really hard to identify the difference between those two. So for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this section of Scripture in Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to look at the section of Scripture, and we're going to see as to what God is going to show us. I would strongly encourage you to listen to both weeks, but we're going to see how how in this text we can see how you can be a person that is under the wrath of God or a person that is under the discipline of God. We're going to see that in both ways. A quick recap, if you remember, Habakkuk was written because Habakkuk went to the Lord with a problem. And we have to remember this. This is important. He went to the Lord with a problem 
about the people of God, the people of Judah. It wasn't, it wasn't the problem with the world and how they were doing it. It was the people that were supposed to be the children of God and how there was no justice going forward, how there was iniquity across the boards, how they weren't following the Lord, how they, they weren't keeping the Passover. They weren't, they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping false idols. This is what Habakkuk goes to God with. He's like, man, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing something about this? And God responds to him and says, I am doing something. I'm raising up a people from the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and they're, they're going to raise them up, and there's nothing they can do, and they're going to come and have their way, and they're going to they're come and discipline the people of Judah. They're going to come, and they're going to be in this harsh, they're, they're harsh people, and they're going to come in, and they're going to take, and they're going to kill, and whoever they don't kill, they're going to enslave, and it's going to be really, really difficult, which brings Habakkuk to a second point, going, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. They're worse than we are. And I think one of the things that we have to pay attention to is that the whole process, the whole step of this was God saying, oh, no, no, I'm going to discipline the people of Judah. I'm going to discipline my children for the fact that they have given themselves to iniquity. They've given themselves to idolatry. They've given themselves to this injustice, and they have not stayed true to it. I'm going to push into them this way. And then he says, you're going to learn that you can either live through this, this difficulty as one that lives by faith, or you can be proud and be humbled by the Lord as one who is not upright or doesn't live through by faith. And this is where the text is. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast or watch the video as we've covered a lot of ground. I'm going to go ahead and read all of it today. And then, like I said, we will go into it next week some more. So verse uh, 5 is where we're going to pick up in chapter 2. Moreover, wine, or could say wealth here, just there's two different ways that can be seen, is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not our debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples, all plunder you. For the, the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who drink, who makes his neighbor drink, who you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image a teacher of lies for its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake to a silent stone arise can this teach behold it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it but the lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silent before him. It's a nice, uplifting set of scripture for us to work in here. This is 
we're going to cover a couple of these woes. There's, there's essentially five woes that come in this text. We see five different sections of woes that come in. There's, there's verse 6, kind of woe to the greedy, and, and verse 9 is woe to the exploiter, and verse 12, woe to the violent, and verse 15, woe to the demoralizer, and verse 19, woe to the idolater. And in each of these woes, in it, there's, a, there's a truth to be spoken for the people of Babylon, the Chaldeans, and the people of God, the people of God's wrath and the people of God's discipline. There's, there's, a, there's a conversation for both of those. A couple things we need to see first off in, in verse 5, the transition is that the proud cannot be satisfied. That when we, when we get it coming out of verse 4, he says, look, the wine is a traitor, the wealth is a traitor, the greed, they keep going on, and this is an endless battle of more power and more wealth and more things. The not upright person will never satisfy themselves. They will, nothing will satisfy them to the end. They will go on and on and on. A second thing we have to understand about is this, is this word woe. There's kind of five separate proverbial sayings in here, these five different sections here. And the word translated woe actually is better kind of translated aha or ah in this section. And it, so because of this, it's in this context, it takes up something of a tone of kind of mockery inherent in these taunt words. So it's like God is almost mocking these Chaldeans. He's mocking them by saying woe to them and what's coming. And he, he goes through and lays out a number of different things that the Chaldeans do that are true to them and says, this is why I'm going to do what I'm going to do. This is what ultimately is going to come from Alexander in 538 or so when, we dis when you're destroyed. But either way, these things that we see, these five separate woes, I think as, as harsh and as difficult and as, as hard as this is to understand, some of these are true of, of us in the church sometimes, which begs the question, if we are a people of God and we see some of the things that we, we see in Scripture here, speaking of the Chaldeans in us, what is God's role with that? And that's where we get these two ideas, this idea of discipline and this idea of wrath. Now remember, in Habakkuk, there's a people of God. They have wandered from God. They've, they've left the Lord. They've left their God. Even though they know the promises, they know the covenant, they know the Mosaic text, they have left God and have gone on their own. And so Habakkuk comes to God and says, do something about it. And God says, oh, don't worry. I am, and what I'm doing is discipline. Now, discipline is one of those words I think we need to define and understand because I think a lot of times the way we see discipline is we see it reactive. We see it kind of like a snap, like, okay, that's it, and discipline. We see it harsh in the way it's supposed to happen, and that's not, that's not the way the Scriptures talk about discipline. And so I'm going to pause for a second and step out of Habakkuk, and then we're going to come in and we're just going to take two of the woes this week. We'll hit the other three next week. First off, we have to see that dis discipline is, is God... God disciplines his sons. In bringing many sons and da daughters to the glory of God, their, their salvation, namely, was the son perfect through suffering. So now we have to recognize that when, when God talks about discipline, he shows us how it was modeled through Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, what? Perfect through suffering. So Jesus was made the, the perfect through suffering. Uh, just in case you're, you're wondering, di disciplines in other spots of Scripture, Job 5, 17 says, Blessed is the one whom God reproves, disciplines. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Don't despise it. It's just another one, Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have what? You have afflicted me. God has afflicted me because his rules are righteous. And it's in faithfulness that he's done so. Guys, discipline is all over in Scripture. 
where it gets a little murky for us to understand is, is okay, is my current circumstance discipline or my current circumstance wrath? And I think the answer is yes to both of those. And, he, and here's, here's why I say that, because we too often want to individualize everything that's happening. So is it, is it possible that this entire coronavirus thing was for the sake of one person coming to the faith of Jesus? Absolutely. That could be the case for sure. Is it possible that it's, it's discipline? Absolutely, that could be the case. Is it possible it's just the brokenness of the world? Absolutely. We can see scripture that talks about how any of that could be true. But what we have to recognize is that no matter what, God is not like up there kind of, oh, I lost control and I don't know which button to hit to kind of get things back in order. He is sovereignly working out the sanctification of every one of his children while drawing those that are not yet his children to him and continuing to work that in every situation, whether it's sinfulness that, that's, that's coming at them, whether it's trials that he's putting in place, no matter what, God is at work. And so we see that, that all the things that God did to bring Israel back to him, we see that in Amos 4, 6 through 11, through famine and drought and blight and pestilence and disaster. So he's willing to go to fairly far extremes to bring his people back to him. We have to recognize that. We have to see that. God is ferocious about having his children and his family together. He is jealous of us seeking out other gods. We see all over in Scripture that relating discipline to the fact that we are his children. He doesn't discipline not his children. He only disciplines his children. We see that in Deuteronomy 8, 5, 2 Samuel 7, 14, Proverbs 13, 24, Proverbs 19, 18, Proverbs 23, 13, plus many, many more. Discipline is something that we have to acknowledge. We have to recognize that this is in place. If you just zoom out for a second, when you think about something, Habakkuk was complaining about the people of God doing what they were doing and asking God to do something with that. And God says, I am doing something. But did you notice what he says? He says, look, I'm going to bring these Chaldeans in and they're going to kill and enslave everyone. Well, what, what just happened then? That, it's not like he says, but don't worry, Habakkuk, none of this will happen to you. No, no, no. The discipline of God for the people of God is going to affect everyone. And Habakkuk, who we could say, like, I'm sure he had sins. I'm sure he struggled. But, but at least at, at what we see in this context, he really loves the Lord and he desires to honor God and wants to, to hear him speak. And he's wrestling with God. And we kind of see that. But Habakkuk gets lumped into this discipline. He gets thrown right into it. So he has to experience what all of the people of Judah are going to experience because of the, in, or the unsubmission of the people to God's ways doesn't seem fair. doesn't seem right. That's what we want to say. Like, how dare you? What's going on? Well, we see a brilliant understanding of what discipline is for and why it happens in Hebrews. And so I'm going to take you there. It's a long text here. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Starts with this. He says, consider him who endured, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, speaking of Jesus, by the way, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, Listen, hear this. Consider him. When, when experiencing hardships or difficulty or things that don't make sense, consider Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we lose sight of what God is doing. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, this is kind of that one-upmanship, I think, that God does here. He's like, look, no matter how difficult your life has been, you have not had to shed your blood for everyone else when you had no reason for it to be done because you were perfectly sinless. So he's saying no matter how hard your life gets, no matter how difficult things are, no matter what comes at you, no matter how long it takes, just don't forget. Consider him. Pay attention to the one who is afflicted for you, Jesus Christ. Pay attention to the fact that you will not have to go to the cross or drink the cup of wrath from God because Jesus has done it for you. And he goes on and says, 
And you, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He's saying, look, have you forgotten this? Like, you are sons, just like Jesus was my son. If God will do this to Jesus, then why would we assume that he would withhold anything from us? Why would we assume that it would be easy for us? No, he says, look, this is what happened to Jesus. It's far above anything that we'll ever experience. Have you forgotten? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, what? Disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, in case you're wondering that every means every, no one's out of that. But he does it, why? Because he loves us. He does it preemptively. He's not reacting to it. He's not, oh, you'd sinned. I'm going to discipline you now. Oh, you sinned. I'm going to discipline you because we can't say that's true. And sometimes I'm sure that is true, but we can't say that's always true because look at Habakkuk here. He's just kind of lumped into the discipline of the Chaldeans that's coming at him from God. He just gets lumped into it. So he's not the one that's worshiping Baals. He's not doing false ideas. He's not trying to see injustice move forward. He's doing the exact opposite. He's pleading to God for those things to come true, for justice to be there, for, for idols to be destroyed. And he's lumped in. And then it goes on, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Now, the NIV translates this one, it says, endure hardship as discipline. So this begs the question. I think that's a good, I think they're both good translations, but this begs the question. So is the hardship that you're experiencing discipline? Well, by this text, we could say yes, yes. Any hardship you experience is discipline. It says endure it. Endure hardship is discipline. For it is discipline that you have to endure. For the sake of discipline, you have to endure. So when hardships come as a child of God, as someone that has been submitted their life to Jesus Christ, then we have to recognize or see that it might just be discipline. God is doing something. And why is it there? Because he loves us and he's preemptive. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all, again, this is all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. He goes, he goes to the plea and like, look, even your earthly fathers discipline you and you respect them. God is so much greater and better than our earthly fathers. Shall we not much more be subject, submit ourselves to the father of spirits and live? And they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, what? For our good, that we may share his holiness. Now, see, here's the, here's the part. Our, our parents, I discipline my children because I think what's good for them. I can't say with 100% confidence that every time I discipline them that it's going to bring out the good in them. I can't, but God can. Every time we endure hardship as discipline, every time discipline is there, God is good, and he knows what he's doing. He knows where he's at. And then this next sentence is just kind of, I think, for us. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Duh, for the moment. But hear that, that, that statement, for the moment, in the middle of it, in this situation, the hardships you're experiencing, the difficulty you're experiencing as a child of God, it's not pleasant. It's not like it's like, oh, yay, I'm being disciplined. This is so fun. No, that's not the posture. He's saying, no, it isn't. It isn't pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you've been trained by it, it yields fruit. This is what God does with his discipline. And we have to recognize that God is always preemptive in discipline. I don't wait until one of my kids has been hit by a car to tell them to stop playing in, the, in a busy road. I go at it beforehand. I say, hey, no, 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 you can't. And if they don't listen to me, I discipline because they're not listening because the, the cost is so great. That's a, one instant where I can see what is going to happen. I can't see every scenario, but God sees our hearts. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what we're going through. He knows the difficulty we're wrestling with. He sees our heart. 
And so the discipline that he brings to us is for our good, and it's going to be creating fruit, and it's going to bring the fruit of righteousness and holiness to us, to those who have been trained by it, who submit themselves under it, and recognize that the hardship you're enduring is training. No one would say I was punishing my kids by yelling at them for not running out in the, t- in the road. They would say, yeah, we, we need to stop that. God is, is preemptive in this. God is slow to anger. Discipline is a vision for the future that brings to bear things today. God sees what's coming in the future, and therefore he puts it in place today to achieve those very things. So God disciplines those whom he loves. God loves us as children, and so discipline will come, and at times it's going to seem harsh and definitely not pleasant. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard, but it's producing something that's very beautiful and powerful. Okay, so remembering that, let's jump back into Habakkuk. We're going to come into Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 15. This is the woe we're going to talk about today. It's woe to the demoralizer. Verse 15, it says, Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. So the picture here that's happening is is the Chaldeans were, were known for their drunkenness. They were known for drinking a lot. So this is speaking about drinking here. But they're talking about how really the drinking was a, a, a conduit with which more ugliness, more darkness, and more sinfulness came. And so he's saying, Look, woe to you. You make people drink with the desire to gaze at their nakedness, to, to take advantage of them. You want them to be out of their wits so you can actually take advantage of what's going on in their life, whether it was, whether it was sexual stuff or just making deals. There was, there was a lot of Chaldeans that were known for getting people drunk and then trying to set up like treaties or, or arguments there. They were just really, really unfair in the way they did it. And also there was a lot of getting people drunk for rape and doing those things, to gaze at those things. So they're saying, like, woe to you. So he's saying, woe to the demoralizer. How dare you demorally do this? Uh, this is ridiculous. You, you pour out wrath and make them drunk. You, you're angry at them in order to gaze at their nakedness. And then he says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. This statement is showing uncircumcision is just attached because it represents a lack of submission to God on earth. That's of, of the earth. This is what they're talking about here. He's saying, look, you go ahead. You keep going. You show yourself. You get naked. You show the fact that you are not a people of God. Keep living this way because it's showing you are not my children. And then he goes on and says, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you. Now, it's a metaphorical cup here. The cup that, that the the Chaldeans pour out, the cup that they pour out is actually a cup speaking to drinking alcohol, doing these things, and, and their anger, and they use this cup to kind of achieve all their different things. Here it comes to the cup in the Lord's right hand. This is the same cup that Jesus speaks of in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the same cup that we see Jesus talking about to his disciples saying, do not get in the way for the cup which God has placed for me. This is the cup of God's wrath. He's saying, look, we'll come around to you. The cup of God's will um, will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Now, this sentence, the way the Hebrew word is, is changed here, this idea is, is to vomit out. So he's saying, look, you're, the very thing that you held up as your glory, your, your posterity, your wealth, your, your, your strong drink, all of those things, you're going to vomit, the, it's going to be vomited out back on you. That's what he's saying here. You're going you're gonna, you're gonna to wallow in Shame. It goes on and says, The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. Now, Lebanon is known for its beautiful kind of gardens, and so he's saying that they were 
there was a time in Carchemish in 605 BC where they went and destroyed Lebanon. And so some scholars think like, oh, he's talking about like the violence you did to Lebanon in this. But most think it's actually more of a metaphorical thing where Lebanon kind of represented the earth and the greenness and everything else. And the, the Babylonians, they just didn't care. They just plowed through and took out animals and, and greens and everything and saying, look, you're going you're gonna to get shame back on you for the things that you've done to the earth, for the things that you've done to my people, for the things that you've done to all people. And that's what, that's what God is saying here. He's saying, this is it. And he uses this idea of cup, this picture of, of wrath. Now, you remember, this is a cup that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we talked about this a few weeks ago, where he was earnestly pleading for this cup to pass him, but, but saying, but if it's your will, God, I will take it. This is the cup that is the, 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 the judgment of God, the anger of God towards sinfulness of man poured out on man, except for in Jesus's case, for those that submit themselves to Jesus, it's poured out on Jesus in place of us. This is the cup that Jesus didn't want to drink. So we got to take that into, into effect. He had to drink for all believers, for all sins, for all time in one sitting. And he's saying this cup, this cup, you, you may use a cup for drunkenness and all those other things, and, and that's where it's at. But don't worry, the cup of the Lord is coming at you, and it will come. It may seem like it takes a while. It may seem like it's in place, but it's going to come. And wrath is one of those, I don't know, it's common to think kind of this Old Testament God is mean and harsh and, and wrath-filled, and, and the God of the New Testament is kind of kind and patient and loving. Uh, really, we have to recognize that that's not the way it's portrayed in Scripture at all. We see Scriptures in the Old Testament all over talking about God's grace, his care, his love for people. And we see scriptures all over in the New Testament talking about his wrath, just to point out one of them, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. Wrath is a, is a solemn topic for discussion, but one which we cannot avoid. See, the idea of an all-powerful being who gets mad is incredibly scary. It's really scary to think about. We know that we are fallible. We know that we all do things that are contrary to righteousness. The notion is that we have to answer for those faults or worse, and worse for specific sins to a God who possesses wrath, is the stuff that nightmares are made from. It's hard, and so many of us want to just ignore it. We want to run from it. We want to push away, but this is what God is showing him back. He's saying, no, 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 don't you worry. I, I will have my discipline on the people of Judah, but I will have my wrath on the Babylonians. I will have my wrath on the not upright on the non-righteous, on the non-justified, those that don't live by faith, I will pour out my wrath on them. God's wrath is the reason for the necessity of the gospel. As we see this in Romans 1, atonement and salvation by grace for re are required because of God's righteousness, righteous wrath against sin. For the believer, deliverance from wrath is our great hope. That's our greatest hope, to be delivered from the wrath. That's the best thing that, we, that could happen to us. And God's wrath is turned aside, or the, the theological term kind of propitiated, for believers by the blood of Christ. God's wrath against sin and sinners is so great that he sent his son to die in the place of those who were to be redeemed. No lesser sacrifice would do. If we deny wrath, we essentially deny the gospel. Why would God send Jesus to the cross if it wasn't that bad, if it could be paid for another way? And so we come to this text and we recognize, like, oh, my goodness, like, these people are, are coming in, and, and he, God's saying, like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my cup. Like, I'm going to pour out my cup on you. 
So this, this begs the question for those of us that are in Christ today. There's one simple question, first off, is that if we are a child of God, then we have to pay attention to what shame we are causing other people in drunkenness and nakedness. That's one thing. We, we can't ignore that as believers. We can't say, okay, well, this is just for the Chaldeans and then operate true to what the Chaldeans are doing. So we have to ask the question, like, okay, so, so what are we doing with alcohol? What are we doing with nakedness? What are we doing with sexual immorality? Like, those are things that God has said, this is do my wrath. This is what Jesus had to pay for for us to get in. This is one of the things in place. So we can't, as children of God, ignore that. We can't pretend like it's not a big deal and just give it, oh, I just, you know, I don't do it all the time, and it's way less than I did before Christ. No, like, this is something, it's, it's, the punishment is due is wrath, and the punishment was paid for for those in Christ on the cross in Jesus Christ. So we can't keep operating that way. Now, it would not be wrong if God is just, and I am giving myself to drunkenness for God to discipline me in that. Because the standard is holiness or righteousness, which is nothing I can achieve on my own. It's what God does in me. So we have to recognize that really we're either sitting under one of two spots, either the discipline of God as those that live by faith or the wrath of God as those who live by faith in anything but God, most likely self-sufficiency. And so this is what this says. God's hand of justice shall make returns to people according to their works. For those of us that are in Jesus Christ and the new covenant of Jesus Christ, our works aren't what save us. It's his work on the cross for us. But if you don't submit yourself to Jesus, if you don't give your life to Jesus, if you don't do that, then you don't have the covering of Jesus' blood. Instead, you have yourself to stand before God. And every single sin you have done, no matter how small or how big, how simple and honest it was, mistake it was or how gross and obvious it was, you have to pay for that. That's what the gospel does. So when, when Habakkuk comes out and God says in Habakkuk, through Habakkuk, look at write this down. I want people to see this. This is what he's talking about. This is what happens to the people who refuse to give themselves to the Lord. As repulsive as wrath in God may appear to the modern mind, it is a scriptural reality that found just this awesome expression as the Son of God suffered in the sinner's place. It's, it's a reality that we, we cannot ignore, but it's also something that's showing that, that God that God in Jesus drank the fury of God in place of me, in place of you. He's a righteous substitute, has drank everything, so that when, when God goes to pour out his wrath on the sins of me, he sees that I am righteous because of what Jesus has done. And there's nothing left in the cup. That cup has been drank to the last bit. There's not a single drop left. That's the good news for those who are upright, who live by faith. That's the good news for us as children of God. One scholar says it this way. It says, The pouring of wrath into the cup finds consummate expression in the book of Revelation, where, quote-unquote, Babylon emerges as a symbol of the epitome of wickedness among the nations. Babylon has made all nations drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries, Revelation 14.8. But anyone who has shared in these perversions must drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured into the cup of his wrath, Revelation 17.4. This is a hard reality to stomach. This is a hard thing to see. God's wrath is not something to be trifled with or small. And this comes back to the statement I said at the beginning. If sin is the issue and sin is what's going on, God has a plan for sin. There's only two options. And it's either to submit yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ or don't. And one will receive discipline because he loves you and the other will receive wrath. That's what it comes to. Verses 12 through 14, moving on, he comes into, I wanted to hit this section because this section is kind of like a little glimmer of hope and ray of sunshine in this really dark, long kind of epilogue of, of stuff he says here in these, these woes. Verses 12 says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity, 
Same, like the, the person that, that is continued to kill and build towns upon killing and upon killing and perpetuated sin, iniquity, that's the word here, behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely, labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. So don't worry, don't worry. God isn't, is, is paying attention. Just because these people are wearing and they're working to, to, up, to build up the Babylonians, these iniquities, don't worry. God is doing something. And then he says this beautiful statement. We've already talked about it, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's quoting Isaiah and Numbers, we see both of those quoted here in this statement. And what he's saying is, look, when God has his way, when God finally does it, no matter how much iniquity you're experiencing, no matter how much, how much sinfulness has been put onto you, no matter how hard it feels in life, don't worry, God will have his way. And when he has his way, when it, when it fully consummates, when it comes to the end, and he's extending out his wrath, and he's, he's receiving all those that get the blessing of Jesus Christ, the entire earth will be filled with the glory of God as the seas are covered by water. He's saying like this is a picture of the entire earth being covered by water. That's how much his glory will be. It'll fill every little nook and cranny no matter what. Not only will Judah's oppressors, the Babylonians, be judged, but the understanding and knowledge of God of his presence will fill the earth, permeating every place like water. And that's the good news in this. That's the, the long-awaited good news that every single one of us need to hear no matter how difficult life is, is that the entire world will be filled with his glory. And the same question I would pose again to those of us, if this, is, if this is a way in which I'm sure many of us aren't killing people to build towns, but we are maybe using people and abusing people and using sin to continue to make ourselves go further along, if you are a child of God, that is one of those things that is not meant for us to operate in. We aren't supposed to keep going on in iniquity. So you're like, well, it's not a big sin. Well, whatever sins are here, he's saying this is due God's wrath. This is the way it's going to be. Only when the problem of the wicked is resolved will the glory of the God fill the earth. Only when righteous judgment rewards the wicked according to their deservings will true knowledge of God's holiness shine forth in all its splendor. God's wrath is swift, but his discipline is patient and slow. And we need to see that. So there's two peoples, two outcomes. There's the, the people of sin, the wrathful, that, that are due God's wrath. There's the, the people of God that are due discipline. Both people will fill the earth with his glory at the end of this. So a Chaldean or Judah unrighteous or righteous, faithful or unfaithful, God will get the glory. He will get the glory in this way. An understanding of discipline versus wrath lets you really tap into the idea that God's love and mercy being made manifest and difficult. When we recognize that God is doing something about this, it doesn't mean that we can just kind of go, oh, okay, I don't have to do anything in this world. No. When we sin, when we see sin, or when we sin, we repent of that, we push in, we bring the light of the Lord to the darkness of this world, and we continue to pray for God to make the earth as it is in heaven. This is what the scriptures teach us. So it's not an evasive thing like, oh, just hands off. Like, no, but recognize in the end, the root problem, the biggest issue is sin, and God is going to have his way with this issue. Now, Habakkuk hears this, and he says, hey, this is what's going to happen. But Habakkuk has to swallow the answer that God is giving him and, and, and kind of take a little bit of optimism and go, oh, okay, God's going to have his way with the Chaldeans, but I may not see it. I may not, I may not see it, so, so I have to live by faith. This is why God tells him at the beginning, you have to, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait, and you're going to have to wait patiently. You're going to have to live by faith. And so for you and us, when we see these injustices, when we see, when we see this death, and we see all the hardships going around, whether it's the people of God or not the people of God, we don't, we don't need to attack them. We need to push into the Lord and recognize that God may say, hey, don't worry, I'm taking care of this. Here's what I want you to do today. Here's how I want you to operate today. The question that we have to answer is, are we under the wrath 
Or are we under the mercy of God? The only way we can answer that, are you under wrath or are you under discipline? The only way you can answer that is what you do with Jesus Christ. This is why the biggest thing we can be pushing our energy into and focusing on is the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news message of Jesus Christ, the, the God who would live a perfect sinless life in human flesh so that we could have a perfect sacrifice so that he could drink the cup that you and I are deserving of God's wrath. This is what we're supposed to do. God's solution to the actual problem in this world, which is sin, is so simple, I think we try to overcomplicate it. The solution is Jesus Christ. Anyone who submits themselves to Jesus Christ, who, who com commits themselves under his lordship, we can't just live in sin. We can wrestle with that, but we can't just, oh, I don't care, I'm just going to live this way. No, God is going to have his way with us because we're his children and he loves us. And because he loves us, he's going to discipline us to make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So whether it's injustice or virus or death, only Jesus is victorious. So only Jesus, and so only in Jesus are we victorious. God will give what is due to everyone, and every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Some will bow as his children and some as his enemy. But either way, everyone will bow. When we see what's deserving of God's wrath, we are reminded of just how important it is for us to live as the new self and not take the cup lightly. We're going to take communion next week, so prepare yourself for that. Do what needs to be done to get your heart right. We're going to take communion because tomorrow, next week, we're going to talk about how, how wonderful it is to drink from the cup of blessing when we deserve the cup of wrath. As hard as discipline is and as difficult as wrath is in the resurrection, we don't have an accusation against God, and he won't have one against us either because we are in Christ. And that is the best news for us. So don't lose sight of what God's doing. We're going we're gonna to worship a couple more songs, and, and don't, don't lose sight of what God is doing. Don't miss how he's speaking to you. Don't miss his way. If you are living in iniquity, if you are living in perversion or drunkenness, then, then recognize as a child of God, if you are a child of God, that, that there's no place for that. If you are not a child of God, you're not giving your life to Jesus, then I, I would invite you to do so now. Submit yourself to Jesus, not out of fear of his wrath, but out of excitement and joy of his love. Recognizing that he will go to all ends to show you his love by even sending his son to the cross to die for you. Submit to him. Give your life to him. When we look at God and we see his wrath and we see his discipline, we can recognize two things. One is we, we, we now know that God is at work. We can't say we didn't see it. He may just be patient and we may see it as taking forever. But we know that God is at work. And the second thing we can say with confidence is that, is that as a child of God, I have a posture and an operation with which I'm supposed to work today on this earth. I'm supposed to be bringing this light, making disciples, sharing the gospel, loving my neighbor, continuing to push out and find ways that I can serve him. But I do it all recognizing that the only thing that's going to combat, combat all the darkness in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be loving to just feed someone. We need to feed them and show them the gospel. We need to meet those needs, but show the truth of what those needs really, 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 of the greater need that they really have, and that's Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your good news. God, it is hard to even think about you being a God of wrath, but recognizing that you are a just God. And so, God, I pray that as your children, we wouldn't we would come to you like a backache. God, if you see this injustice and, and earnestly seek you and wrestle with you like we've been talking about, but God, I pray that we would do it as a position of submitted to you, recognizing that when we have hardship, we need to endure it as discipline. And God, for the ways that we need to be acting today in light of the truth that we have, in light of the scriptures that you've given us, in light of your Holy Spirit that is indwelling us, God, I pray that we would be obedient to it in all ways, that we wouldn't just throw our hands up and say, well, sin's the issue, God's gotta have his way, but instead, every time we see sin, God, we grieve 
we grieve because we know that ultimately sin is due wrath. And the only reason why those of us that are in Christ aren't due that wrath is because of what he has done for us, God, not because of our coolness or something we've worked up. And so, God, would you help us to live accordingly to your gospel? Would you help us to share your gospel? Would you help us to meet the needs that need to happen? But, God, would you help us do it in a way that is fully submitted to your word and submitted to who you are? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.